millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast. The podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to the Foth Pod. Now, this week's film is Merrill's Marauders, which was chosen by our Patreons in July's film vote uh, that we hold every month over on our Patreon page. Now, if you want to join in the fun and keep the mics on here at the Foth uh, HQ, then please do have a look at our Patreon tiers that start from little as £2.50 per month. Now, this week's guest is no stranger to the show, having joined us in Anzac Month for Attack Force C. It is, of course, Gavin Mortimer, whose book, Merrill's Marauders, the untold story of Unit Galahad and the toughest special forces mission of World War II. He's perfect to join us for this film. Gavin, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Good to be back and looking forward to talking uh, about the Marauders and particularly this film, which uh, it's fair to say didn't go down that well with the Marauder. Certainly the event that I spoke to. Mm, Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting into that. And there are a couple of Patreon questions that will be coming up later on in the show. So, Matt, would you like to talk about the cast first and then we can go into production? Well, I mean, starting off, we've got got to mention that this is um, Jeff Chandler's last film and he is the eponymous Merrill uh, in the movie. He'd been in a number of films before, made, uh, made his name actually as Cochise in, Bo- in Broken Arrow, and he, he played Cochise a couple of times in his career. Did lots of westerns, lots of romantic comedies, etc. And then a couple of war movies, including um, Away All Boats in 1956, um, The Red Bull Express, about um, the logistics of, of moving things up from uh, the beaches on D-Day, um, and The Yankee Buccaneer, which is a, a bit of a naval adventure set in the 1830s, I think. And and yeah, and tragically, um, in 1961, not too long after production ended on the movie, he went and had uh, some back surgery uh, and and died as a result of uh, apparently malpractice. The the, uh, the the operation on his spinal cord, um, I think he had a, a slipped disc or something like that, and it went wrong. And 
He had perhaps about 70 pints of blood during a couple of operations to, to try and save him. And he got blood poisoning and died, sadly, at that, you know, almost at the height of his fame. Sam, in his biography, The, the Third Face, says, I, I thought it was going to usher in this new age for Jeff. And it, it isn't. It's his last movie. And he says, I always feel awful for that. Um, he almost blames himself in a way. It's quite sad. Yeah, isn't it? I, you sent me that, and I, I read it, and I thought it was interesting. It talks about him being a very physical guy. Anyway, he was playing football between takes. Um, never complained about his back on set while they were filming it, and it looked like a fairly demanding film. You know, moving a lot across some fairly difficult terrain, walking through water. You know, that that takes a toll on 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 someone in heat, doesn't it? I think it was filmed in the Philippines. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, it, it, to not complain during that kind of grueling filming is, is one thing. And then to just have a, a terrible, you know, mm. surgery and then, and then die in such a I think it, it adds to his, way, really. It adds to the characterization because I know that he was reportedly feeling ill and, and had this back pain on set. Um, well, the limp. Yeah. The, I mean, yeah, the, I always you, think seeing with that limp throughout the film, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sure Gavin will talk more about, you know, that, about, Meryl's actual health. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's right, because, of course, Meryl died. We see that in the film. And Meryl died, I think, in the early 50s of his mm. uh, of his weak heart. So, yeah, there's a sort of a rather eerie um, parallel between the two, yeah, fact and fiction. Mm. Yeah. So the other lead uh, in there is Ty Harding, uh, another interesting character. And he, <laughs> and he, uh, he uh, was plays second lieutenant um, Stockton, uh, who apparently has the entire um throughout the entire film was the the point platoon for for the marauders throughout the whole campaign but and and single-handedly took um i think it was oh what's the the first battle in that film they all of them well during that first main battle sequence in the film they detail a battalion to to knock out the the fuel dump and then just stocks platoon does the whole operation <laughs> you don't yeah. see anyone else doing it it's just stocks platoon goes all the way through but yeah so i mean ty harding I mean, perhaps his most prominent war movie role outside of this is um, Lieutenant Schumacher in Battle of the Bulge, where he plays that fifth columnist. Yeah. Oh, um, is that blimey? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I forgot uh, that he was in that. I, that a I Korean wiped war that film from my memory. Lots of westerns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> um, uh, PT-109 in, in uh, 1963. Hmm. Um, and then... As we mentioned before the show, he famously went on to found the anti-tax movement, the uh, Arizona pa- uh, Patriots. Yeah. Um, quite the character. Yeah, yeah. Ralph. Like, he died only a few, uh, uh, 2017. 2017. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, oh, Gavin was then, telling me all about that anti-tax thing before we started. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> well, no one likes paying tax, but well, no, I mean, I've but... never started a movement to prevent it. <laughs> no, that's what I mean. Yeah. I just love the name, the Arizona Patriots. I mean, I, when I first heard it, I'm, I was sure that was in the NFL team. Yeah, and, I was uh, about to say that. It, it's it sounds Then just to round out the rest of the cast, we got uh, Peter Brown as Bullseye. Um, his other major uh, war movie credit was uh, Darby's Rangers in 1958 with James Garner. Uh, Andrew Duggan played uh, the Doctor, uh, Captain uh, Colondy. Um, he 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 was in a lot of westerns, and I mean a lot of westerns. Uh, Will Hutchinson played Chowhound. Um, again, another actor with a lot of small roles in westerns. Uh, he, he was also in uh, Bombers B fifty two in nineteen fifty seven, and the World War One um, 
American Pilots movie, Lafayette Esquadrille, in 1958 as well. And then we've got Claude Atkins, who was Colowitz, the sergeant of the platoon. Um, and he was an actual veteran of the of um, the U.S. Army um, Signal Corps in, in Burma and, and the Philippines, apparently. And uh, he, he was in From Here to Eternity, The K-Mutiny, The Raid, and uh, played Rocky Rockman in The uh, the Devil's Brigade in, in 1968 as well. Who else have we got? We've got Pancho Malanga, Maga, Magalona, I think it is. Pancho Magalona, who plays Tangi, the... Um, the uh, anachronistic Filipino translator who yeah. I know Gavin is going to talk about a little bit in a, uh, later on. He was, he was um, quite a well-known Filipino actor and he appeared in Cavalry Command in 1958, uh, The Hook, a Korean war movie with uh, Keck Douglas, which I haven't seen and need to look up. Oh, nice. And then he was also quite, I found quite interestingly, he was in a Yankee in Vietnam, which is, I think the one of the, if not the first, one of the first us Vietnam war films. I know, Gavin, you mentioned earlier there was a lot of controversy around that. Do you want to talk about that now or later on? Firstly, just to say that what's interesting is of the cast, uh, there, were, there were three characters, three real-life characters. So you had Meryl, mm. um, General Stilwell, and then you had the Doctor, who you mentioned, Doc uh, Colodney, which is interesting. I mean, I, I don't know, Meryl and um, Stilwell, yeah, of course, you know, they're, they're the sort of the main protagonists of, of a Marauder's story. But why... Why they had that doctor? Because there were about uh, how many? Uh, I think there were six doctors in total in the Marauders, and um, this one was um, uh, yeah, wasn't a standout doctor, or but he, whether he was a friend of someone or uh, I don't know. But anyway, that's just quite interesting that there were three real life characters. So yeah, going back to this whole Filipino business, and I, I tweeted um, about this today with um, when, um, a link to what. For the um, discussion now, that um, that that caused um, uh, some deep uh, offence at the time in like, when the film came out uh, in '61, and which was still there in 2013. That's when I interviewed Roy Matsumoto, who was one of one of the 14 Japanese American uh, Nisai interpreters. Now, Roy is one of the most remarkable men. Um, I ever had the, the privilege to meet. He was born in um, California. Uh, and then when he was about 12, he was sent to Japan, to uh, Hiroshima, would you believe, where his family right. was from originally. And he spent his adolescence in there, didn't like it. As soon as he was 18, came back to the States. So now we're talking 1931, the Depression. Got a job as a grocer's assistant, um, delivering for, for a... Um, a family member, so delivering groceries to mainly the Japanese community in California, which proved to be vital because there he came across lots of um, different Japanese accents. So he he got the ear picking out, you know, like with us, Brahmis, Scousers, Cockneys, whatever, West Countrymen. So um, yeah, of course, yeah, war broke lots out. Of, lots of yeah variation. He was deemed along with thousands of other Japanese Americans, an enemy alien. He was interned in January 42. Six months, he was interned. Um, and then it suddenly dawned on the Americans that they, they here was a great untapped resource. Never mind that they treated them so abominably, um, but they needed interpreters. So Roy 
um, volunteered for, I think it was the American Intelligence Service, trained as, a, as an interpreter, and then he volunteered for that. And then he volunteered for the Marauders in um, September 43. And in, in Burma with the Marauders, what he did was extraordinary. He, he tap, there's, a, there's a moment in the film where you see uh, Tangy climbing up to, to tap into a phone wire. That actually happened. That was Roy. He spent the whole day doing it. Um, he put a, a, a little sort of like an, an alligator clip and, and he was able to listen in to the 18th Division and they actually said, we are going to attack the Americans from their uh, one of their flanks. So he was able to climb down, tell them that, and the, Amer the marauders were waiting for them to wipe them out. At the um, siege of Nepunga, which was uh, a two-week siege uh, involving the second battalion, which was Roy's battalion, um, what he actually did was he would climb out of his foxhole at night, crawl to within about six feet of a Japanese position. Now, bear in mind, Roy told me, you know, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was that mm. stuff. He would just listen in to the Japanese giving instructions. And maybe, you know, because the Japanese, of course, didn't think that, they they were sort of loud whispers. They didn't think yeah. the marauders could. And then he and they did this. And on one night, he crawled back to Ted McLaughlin, who was his um, commanding officer, and he said, they're going to attack at 0600 as, and they're going to attack the right-hand side of, of where they were besieged, dug in in this hillside. So again, they were waiting for them. The Japanese attacked, and, um, and they just uh, wiped out the first wave. Second wave, sort of faltered. They saw what happened to the first wave. And Roy shouted out in perfect Japanese um, the, the commands, the right commands, advance, um, keep going, keep going. And so the second wave faltered, but then kept going, and they were wiped out too. So that's, that's Roy Matsumoto for you. And well, you see Tangi like at the very end of the movie, he does do that, doesn't he? He goes into, into, into no man's land and, and listens yeah. in and says there's going to be a yeah. banzai well, so, so I asked Roy when I interviewed him. I said, "What did you think of the film when it came out?" And he just said, "No comment." Oh. And then his daughter sent me uh, a lovely woman, Karen, sent me an email saying, and I quote: "Now our family was shocked. The character who portrayed Roy was replaced by a Filipino mercenary who just happened to speak Japanese. It appeared Hollywood was then unable or unwilling to have a Japanese American." as a hero, which I think is appalling. Because is. And, and the Marauders were outraged too, because they still, when I, inter I interviewed about a dozen of them, they held the Nisai in absolute awe. Because as one said to me, you know, we knew what had happened to us if we were caught by the Japanese. Imagine what they would do if they caught one of the Nisai. Yet they volunteered and they performed just with extraordinary, not only efficiency, but courage. It's so weird, isn't it? Because they... They had go for broke in the fifties, yeah, which is a, a, a direct depiction of a you know very highly decorated Japanese unit. And then, probably just under ten years later, they aren't able to do that. You know, have a, a singular Japanese American character peculiar. that played such a large role and did so many you know courageous things. And you know, it's, mm. it, it boggles the mind a little bit, doesn't it? It does, yeah, yeah. Well, Fuller, it's it might be Fuller's doing because he says in his autobiography that he was able to choose the cast or whether that it's a thing from up high that just goes, you know, you have to have this guy in or may, or I felt like it was a, 
um, so they could just mention Batan, like because it because you know they yeah. they talked to him about. Oh, he does yeah, mention it a number of times, doesn't he? Because he says to him to tuck in his uniform, in his jacket, and he goes, "Oh, I wasn't dirty enough when I came back from the Philippines. I wasn't dirty enough when I travelled across the ocean to come and join your army." It's like it's it, it's like oh, I'm doing you a favour here, and I was like, "Oh, is it just so they can mention?" Those perhaps so. I mean, yeah, how it, far, was, so it was filmed in the Philippines, wasn't it? Was, you know, yeah. was, there, was there some deal done, you know, with um, sure. maybe, filming the Philippines yeah. and the Filipino was one of the heroes? Well, I mean, why couldn't they have had both? Exactly, they could have easily had both. Exactly, yeah. Just to round out cast before we move on to, to production, an interesting one is a, a cameo, um, by Samuel Vaughan Wilson, who was actually a uh, lieutenant general in the US Army. Um, and he had been the chief reconnaissance officer of the uh, 5307th. Yeah. And he was the technical advisor on the film, which I think is really interesting. Now, I, as you said earlier, Gavin, I wonder if the Doctor character was perhaps suggested by um, by Wilson as, oh, well, that, that was a, one of the Doctors. You know, perhaps he was a friend. And that's why he was chosen out of the, the six or so Doctors that were actually, you know, there. And he was a named character. I don't know. But. I thought uh, that was really interesting that the, the technical advisor who well, I mean, was I, actually I, I, there I got a cameo. Yeah, I interviewed um, Sam Wilson, uh, General Sam, who died in 2017. As you said, he was a he was a 20-year-old platoon commander at the time. Turned out to be one of the top marauders. Mm. I mean, he had this very distinguished career, um, a high rank. He actually coined the mm. phrase counterinsurgency, high-ranking TIA Um uh, officer I read a little bit of his bio and he seemed like quite the man leading leading force in um in Delta force in establishing it but really intelligent you saw you, people listening to this will probably think guy you know they can imagine this sort of big cigar chewing crew cut American not at all he was a very very um he in fact he was the um the dean in his final years of, of quite a a well-known liberal, uh, I could get this wrong, is it Hartford, I think, a well-known liberal arts university. He was a really open-minded guy. When I talked to him, I was a bit apprehensive beforehand, but we had this long two-hour conversation and uh, he was just an extraordinary man. And in fact, there's a question that one of the viewers has, has asked about Stillwell. I'm, I'm going to, in answering that, I'm going to quote what Wilson told me when I spoke to him, which is interesting. But Wilson also, really honest man, very intellectually um, um, uh, courageous and open-minded, but he had some very, very strong things to say about Merrill and the, the second in command, who's completely omitted from the film, Charles Hunter, yeah. who was really the driving force behind the Marauders. Wow, fascinating! It's amazing. Well, I won't, I won't mention Sam in my production notes now because <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't think mine are going to be as good as that. So the production. It's a Warner Brothers production, and it was pitched to Sam Fuller, the film's director, as a, quote, dry run for his passion project, which would be the Big Red One. Obviously, he served with the Big Red One in the Second World War, combat veteran, served in Africa, served in Normandy. Um, he helped liberate Frankenau concentration camp as well. He filmed footage of the liberation of that camp, and it was used in a, a document, a French documentary about the camp. Um a Fuller obviously goes on to direct The Steel Helmet and Fixed Bayonets, being Korean war movies. Um, he gets a bronze star during his service, a combat infantryman's badge, Purple Heart, 
Um, the movie was also co-written by Fuller and uh, Milton Sperling, who serves as the film's producer. Um, his credits include Battle of the Bulge and Retreat Hell and two wartime documentaries, Battle of the Marianas in 1944 and To the Shores of Iwo Jima in 45. Um, and William H. Clothier acted as the film's cinematographer. He was a veteran of the United States Army Air Force and he flew in B-17s. Um, and his credits include For Whom the Bell Tolls, uh, Memphis Bell, with, uh, that was directed by William Wellman, um, and The Alamo with John Wayne and The Devil's Brigade. Uh, wow. The film's score was composed by Howard Jackson, and he also uses parts of the score from Objective Burma. However, the composer for that one is uncredited. It premiered on the 29th of May in New York City and in the UK on the 14th of July 1962. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, the film is filmed in location on the Philippines, and they had a production headquarters set up at Clark Air Base, and over a thousand Filipino soldiers served as the film's extras. Uh, the film's budget was reportedly over $1 million, and according to Fuller in his memoir, A Third Face, uh, the movie made apparently $18 million back. Um, now, that's incredible for 1962, if that's the case. Uh, that's a big box office take. And for that, uh, Jack Warner bought uh, Sam Fuller a car of his choice, uh, and he's, after lots of thinking, uh, apparently... Uh, um, Fuller chose a Cadillac, um, so that was, uh, <laughs> was nice for Sam. And the review this week uh, comes from, it's a very obscure one, this paper this week. I think we've had a, a paper that's not a well-known one for a while. It's from the Lewisham Borough News <laughs> from <laughs> the 24th of July, 1962. So Merrill's Marauders, stirring melodrama based on the exploits of the American Army units in Burma jungle in World War II. This film, tense, exciting, and finely photographed in Technicolor, is the authentic, I mean, we'll find out, won't we, from Gavin, um, <laughs> story of the men known as Merrill's Marauders. It comes over as probably the best war picture for some years. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know if I fully agree with that statement, but it was a, nice, it was a good little roundup there. Do you want me to um, just read out some of... Uh... <clears throat> the reviews that the Marauders Please told me. do, I think that would be a great way of um, of off offsetting that. They'd made their reservations known at the annual reunion um, but Warner Brothers quote, had assured the Marauders they would like what they saw. Um, it's interesting, yeah, because when it was released, the New York Times described it as a war drama of individuality and merit. Ted McLaughlin, who I mentioned earlier, who was a um, uh, platoon leader described it as just terrible shoot it up stuff it didn't develop character it was based on Merrill Rob uh, Pasinitzi described it as quote pure Hollywood utterly unrealistic and um, but I, I mentioned what Roy Matsumoto said of it which is interesting because as Matt said earlier with um, <clears throat> uh, Sam, Sam Wilson as a technical advisor However, you know, there's one thing, it's one thing being a technical advisor, how much influence he has. The uniforms yeah. were certainly mm. quite, um, the uniforms and the weapons from what I saw. Um, I never saw, I was looking through my photos today, I never saw them, they're in the film they're festooned with grenades, like Christmas tree and baubles. But uh, in the photos I was looking for uh, through today, I couldn't see any of uh, that. Headgear is very re realistic. They they wore a lot of um, whatever they fancied, really. Helmets, sort of sun hats, the, mm. the, uh, sort of the, the cloth caps. Um, in terms of actual terrain, it's not really realistic. 
Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of they were uh, very in Burma, very thick, tall elephant grass, uh, eight, ten feet long. Other times, they were, in fact, funny enough, it was Sam Wilson who was telling me once when he spent a day hacking through um, a bamboo jungle, and he just said it was the worst day of my life. It was just thick with stuff. It was so thick, mm. and you just had to chop at it and chop at it. Um, and um, then the, the scene where they're going up the mountain, the Kumon mountain, where in the film it's sort of a zigzag and they're sort of pressed against the edge. Nothing like that at all. That's actually very muddy, um, very, um, very foggy. Uh, and actually up top, it was freezing. And again, Sam Wilson said, I remember up top, we're all huddled together and we were listening to the radio, trying to pick up the radio on the top of the mountain. So, but again, you know, you're limited if you if you film in the Philippines. That's the yeah. uh, that's what you're going to get. But um, yeah, I think it was I think it was interesting. I mean, the two I see, Charles Hunter, who I mentioned earlier, was so disgusted with the film. He's not even mentioned mm. um, that he he wrote his own memoirs um, uh, a couple of years later, which unfortunately uh, he allowed his bitterness to get the better of him. He was shipped back at the end of. Um, the mission he was shipped back and he was shipped back not flown back so by the time he he landed in america stillwell and merrill um would have had the chance to put their side of the story there's okay. a, a lot of controversy about what happened because in the film we see merrill soldiering on and um the, the tough guy no absolutely not he right. had he did have a heart attack um on march the 28th and then really for the next month he was after the picture, uh, and it was Hunter who led them really on the on the climax, the siege at Nepomgar, and then over the Kumon Mountains of the taking of Michinar. Um, Stillwell flew in to Michinar, uh, I think on about the 19th of May, promptly had another heart attack and was shipped back to, I uh, was flown off to India. So um, it's, it's not how Merrill is portrayed in the film is not the reality. That's fascinating. That is really is. Brings us on to our one word reviews this week, The Return, after I think we've got a few weeks off of it. Um, so Robert Lyman, big names on the one word yeah, review this yeah. week. We had, uh, it's not a one word, but it was good. So I'm going to stick it in. He said there were more Americans in SEAC than Brits, uh, 277,000 versus 100,000. He said it's not one word, but hey, I like that. Um, I think that refers back to maybe our Objective Burma episode with James Holland that we did. Because um, there was a big controversy around that. And I noticed in this film, they go at pains to mention how many uh, Commonwealth <laughs> and British troops were involved in the Burma campaign. They don't make the same mistake twice. I mean, it is interesting because in that intro, which is really good, I'm sure we'll talk about it later. It's quite, quite a good intro, yeah. actually. Um, they, they are at pains to, to name every part of the UK. Like They talk about Wales, Scotland and, and England. And it, it's just like they're painfully trying to make you know americans alongside all of these other people it must be jack warner's experience of doing objective burma and the fallout of that it must be <laughs> well maybe so maybe so and, and you know then all we get is is about five guys walk past in not great you, you british kit <laughs> yeah, it's not and the officers we'll clearly get, we'll not british but you know i mean <laughs> carry it's, on yeah. rob no it's all right it's fine uh, then we had world war ii tv's paul woodage uh, he says fuller-esque and we, we know he's a big Fuller fan. I think Big Red One's one of his favourite movies. I, I remember talking to him about that once. He's right. I think it is Fuller-esque. Um, and then uh, we have one more. Uh, Simon Whippet said sweaty. And I think that probably sums up the feeling there. 
I mean, without further ado, I think that probably brings us on to the alley tally this week. It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. So, Gavin, as our guest, you know, you've extensively researched this period and, and this theatre with the, with the, and the chaps that fought there. Something that the movie does well <laughs> in terms of representing Meryl's Marauders. Yeah, I think I, I'm going to talk about this in the favourite scene. With, with the, the mules, the bond between man and animal, that was done quite well. Um, and, and there is, I mean, there is, undoubtedly, I just mentioned about how it's really Hunter in reality and, and Meryl in the film. But what did happen? Was the um, uh, because the, the reason for the, the the source of the Marauders' angst, which was sort of nearly um, simmered over into mutiny later on in the campaign, that they were continually promised this was going to be the last mission. And um, in um, after the siege at Napunga, um, which ended, I think, Easter Sunday, so it was about April the 9th, uh, 1944. Um, that they they thought that was it, and um, and then they were told no, we're going to push on to take the airstrip at Michener, um, going over the six six and a half thousand foot uh, Cumon Pass, and um, and then when they they were told that when they got to um, Michener airstrip they'll be flown off to him, that would be it. But no, they spent three months bugging at the airfield. So that's that was just a quick explanation of, of why the sort of a disgruntlement. But we do see in the film the the worry that um, that Merrill has about pushing his men on when they're when they're already sick. And again, you know, that, that is touched on the diseases. And for me, this is why the Marauders were set such an exceptional, even among the, the special forces. I've written about the SAS, the SBS, the Long Range Desert Group, um, and as magnificent as they were. They didn't have to contend with debilitating diseases, so malaria, dysentery. I mean, some of the marauders are telling me that they cut the um, uh, seats out of their trousers so that when they... Oh, like walk, the Australians at Kokoda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah, I think it was quite a common thing. Scrub mm. typhus, which killed quite a lot of marauders. And, and just you know, some of the men telling me, you know, just saying to me, I can't convey what it was like when you've got malaria or dysentery or, or um, scrub typhus, which is peculiar to the jungle. And, and ha- your, you know, your temperature is about 104, your head thinks you're going to explode. It was always at the back of your mind, an ambush by the Japanese, and you've just got to keep going, keep going. And I think that's why I have such admiration for the marauders. And that is touched on in the film. So we see that at, at before the final scene when they go to Michener, that, that is that, that is conveyed that sort of mm. thing. Uh, and, and, and while it was Hunter really in that position, not Merrill, nonetheless, I mean, I think that's good the way the way that they've done it, just to say the men were at that uh, sort of the, at the end of their tether, but they had to keep going. Yeah, there's one I do. That's one thing that the film, the film does like did well. I think it does show you the the strain on the men. It takes quite a while for them to look weathered and strained but when they do it is done quite well and i like the scene where they have that really sort of delirious almost uh, you know out of hunger argument about food i quite like that bit too that was really nice i think that's one of the stronger points of the movie when it when it turns its thoughts less about battles 
and Merrill's sort of, uh, you know, is he going to make it? Uh, is he going to push these men too hard? When it actually took, shows you how the men are feeling and the strain put upon them, I do like that. Um, I, think that's re- I think that's really important. It's a good point, um, Rob, because I think they were, it was a battle because their, their engagements with the Japanese were few, but they were uh, unsure when they happened, but pretty violent, pretty mm. savage. Um, but it, the, really, in a way, and, and this was very much what was what I what I felt interviewing the, the marauders that it was a battle just as much against the environment, and whether that's disease or whether that's the you know the, the bamboo, the elephant grass. Don't forget, there were some pretty nasty snakes out there, and some of the boys were telling me, <laughs> you know, you don't want to, the last thing you want to see is a python when you're uh, no. when you're naked. Um, or a cobra, etc. So there's all these things sort of playing on your mind, I think. Um, and if you compare that, say, to the to the North African campaign, when it's a very clean environment, um, no disease really, um, you know, the odd viper in the desert, but it's just you again. It's just mm. the 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 um, the Germans, the Axis forces. Whereas here, that's right. It's psychologically, I think, it's much more demanding of the of the men. Yeah. Yeah, because that's something that the beach red. If you've seen that, that's that really gets um, the psychological element quite you know, goes into quite some detail there. Matt, is there anything you really, Matt, you want to pick out this week? Yeah, in terms of you know equipment and stuff, as as Gavin said near the beginning of the show, like they they get they get the uniform and the aesthetic, you know, quite quite on point. Um, this the, the sergeant with the M nineteen twenty eight A one, and I like the part in the I think it's the opening. Uh, engagement where they're they're uh, on a bank and the Japanese are coming over the top, and he's firing this Thompson, and he, he either you know he has a jam or he runs out of ammunition. Yeah. And Stock gives him his carbine. He says, "Use mine," and then Stock goes to his his pistol, and that that's nice. That's a nice little touch. I think the weapons handling in this film in general is actually really interesting because um, it, it's it is full esque, as we said. Hey, those set pieces are really well done. They're a little bit. Um, they're very choreographed for this period. Yes, you can that, see it, you know, especially, word. especially with that sequence where they're attacking the fuel dump. And I think it's bullseye says stock. Let me have that hot one. And they throw a grenade that's had the pin pulled and the safety levers, you know, gone. And he, they throw a grenade through like three men before he, he throws a group of Japanese yeah. um, that are approaching. It is command. Well, it's like commando book warlord. It is. It stuff. is. Um, yeah. it, it totally is. And it, I suppose, it just—it's interesting the way those three battles punctuate the film. The film's three acts. Mm. You open up with that introduction of Stock and his men um, being shown as highly capable. You know, they're—they're they're the lead platoon. They're the um, the vanguard, and then they're set in to do the mission anyway. So I—I I, I said before we began um, recording, I think, and the, the beginning of that first battle sequence, Merrill discusses which battalion is going to do what objective. And then when the actual sequence is shown, it's just Doc's platoon that goes straight through and knocks out the, the ammo dump and, and does everything, basically. Um, I I quite liked the uh, the use of 57mm anti-tank guns as the Japanese artillery. I thought that was funny. Um, yeah, nice little touch. Yeah. Nice little, and, uh, and, and then the only movie tropes there. Yeah, exactly. And that right artillery and all things like the, that. Those American 105s that are in every war movie <laughs> yeah. in the 60s. 
Um, I, assume, I assume this is what the Filipino army are using at the time. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and again, and again, I think the the other interesting thing is that a lot of the small arms in the movie are correct. So you've got you not only see M nineteen nineteen eighty fours, the air cooled, but you also yeah. see uh, the water cooled, which Gavin posted a, a photograph on Twitter, a series of in a, in a thread, and we retweeted it. Um, and there's a nineteen seventeen water cooled in in that in mm-hmm. one of those photographs, and then you have a an M two Browning pops up, and uh, the Japanese have Type ninety two machine guns, which. I assume the Filipino army must have must have captured and, and had on hand. Yeah, got them left over from uh, from yeah. the campaigns there. So for me this week, I, I really liked seeing um, American HBT, the herringbone twill uniforms. Um, mm. They're almost like the uh, the US version of our battle dress denims that the Home Guard wear and uh, troops wear when they're working. Um, they're just they they look very uh, sort of iconic for that theatre. Um, you know, they weren't exclusively worn in the Pacific. You see them all over. Um, all over the, the American combat experience, you see them all over, really. Uh, but they, they look nice, and they, they are they are distressed. They're grimy, you know. No one. It's not like something where when we watched uh, when trumpets fade, every man looked the same. Um, they look mm. like a, off the peg sort of uniform. But this one, I like the the little touches. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So the, the chap who's, I forget his name, but he's with the mule. He's cut his um, his sleeves off and he's wearing like a long-sleeved yeah, yeah. shirt underneath. You've got, you've got, I think you've got the platoon leader. He's rolled his sleeves up. You've got this old, the old sweat sergeant. He's fully buttoned up, short sleeves down. You know, he feels like an old campaigner um, from from Guadalcanal or something. Well, he was an in. actual veteran, so yeah. maybe that's how that maybe he knew best. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that. It's really nice. The webbing's good. The the only one small immersion break. It's very small. Um, if you don't, you, you're not, if you're not looking for it, you won't see it. On the march at the end, when it says, "Oh, and they did win the battle," and they're marching. There's a guy at the front with an M1 carbine, but it's got a thirty round clip in it, and that's oh, wrong. Okay. Um, it's not wrong for World War II. They used them really at the end of a few prototype they did. ones. A lot, they all have the bayonet look as well, though, don't they? Yeah, they do. And that was um, a late war thing. It's not. It was only a very small thing. I'll let them off because it's probably what the Philippines have got. Um, it doesn't matter. But the the one thing that I did sort of laugh, not laugh at, it's not wrong per se, but when the British troops come in... <laughs> oh, yeah, we've got to talk about that. It, yeah. They're in... I want to say they're in Jungle KDs. I mean, it... They, I don't they think look they, like are. they are. They might well, be. Yeah. It's the right um, colour. 
the right colour. They've got felt hats on. Well, they've got they've got um, Mark II helmets on as and well. Yeah, the, 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 there's a couple with with the slouch hats. Yeah, uh, when 19 now out webbing, it's not wrong. Mm. I've seen it used. I think the Australians used it. Uh, mm. Ennis Malley was saying that on Twitter was, when I, yeah. I mentioned this because I, I was watching the film and I thought, well, that's so interesting because we've had that intro that is at pains to mention the British involvement <laughs> to the point where it talks about all the different you know parts of the UK. And then it looks and like then the, the costume the was one, The one English person that talks is oh cl- quite clearly Australian trying to do a British accent. Does this predate Mary Poppins? Because it's like... It's like um no, this I've is nothing exactly compared to Dick Van Dyke's accent. It, Dick Van Dyke's <laughs> accent is so much We're better all than this chap. <laughs> the raid in Spain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's very bad. But they're, they're one of them, I did you notice, Matt, one of them's got a number for the Enfield. He does. Yeah, he does. One just one of them. The rest of them have got M1 car but uh, Garands. But it, it's I you know. know, yeah, it's a bit it hard. It was nice it? to and see them. Like it was nice. I think the officer's know. got like a leather um Webley holster as well. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's a but it's a, it, it, it's a weird mismatch of kit. That's that's. But for sure. yet again, they look like they've been through the mill as well. That there is there is that level of detail. You have got men with you yes, know, arms you know, the, in slings. All of them seem to be wounded. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they didn't look in very good state. No. I didn't think they were going to get a hundred yards down the road. <laughs> yeah, and they're they're the point unit. Christ, exactly. <laughs> yeah. like, that's the British. That's British spirit. They'll fight for anything. <laughs> well, you yeah. know, they're being they're being led by Britain's only Oslo officer. <laughs> Oslo. Um, <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, so yeah, why not? Oh, fantastic! But I thought for overall for, for a it, it for what a you know early sixties movie that feels very much like a black and white. 1950s combat film it does a good job i think there's nothing in there that's too immersion breaking or anything like that you know it's it's no I, I, i've watched i've watched far worse far worse films in terms yeah. of that kind of thing i mean there's some uh low budget korean war movies where they're just they're just not i began watching that one you mentioned to me the other day combat squad combat squad oh my god yeah, yeah. and oh yeah. my that's <laughs> that's bad. uh we'll get onto that one um in the coming yeah i'm weeks, sure I that'll think. be mentioned at some point so but yeah does that bring us on to favorite scenes i think it does hello there sorry to interrupt i wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on patreon as thanks for your support you'll be able to help us pick films submit questions for guests have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch and much more Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So, Gavin, as you're our guest, what's your favourite scene from the film? I like the scene with the um, uh, with the mule skinner uh, halfway up the uh, the the mountain, and when um, he, um, he he takes the the, the mules uh, the mules obviously as they were as the, the mountain itself isn't very realistic, but that that sort of scenario happened and. Um, so he sort of he, he takes some of the load from the mule, and he's you know they, they want to shoot the mule, but he says no, no, and it just shows you that bond that, that existed, and and it really did yeah. exist between. And the men had had great affection, I think, for the for the mules. But there was a very funny story told to me by um, well, actually more than one. I think it became a bit of a uh, an, uh, uh, a marauder's. Uh, a unit fable that going up the mountain, one of the mules fell into a ravine and they were trying to get it out. And the, the catchphrase of the or sort of a running joke among the marauders was um, 
you volunteered too. Um, or no, well, you volunteered for this. So when they were grumbling to each other, they would say, well, you volunteered too. And and so when they're trying to pull this mule out of the ravine, and uh, a marauder said, get up, you son of a bitch, you volunteered too. And that sort of joke to the, um, I think that's that sort of shows you the, that they, they saw the mules as one of them, as part mm. of them, as part yeah. of the unit. That they were all in this together, really, to use yeah. that good old cliche. And so I think that, that was represented by this scene, um, where the, the I think they even was, paraphrase saying that at some point in another scene, don't I, they? Yeah, I think they. I think it became a bit. I don't know, whether it was actually said or it's become a bit of an urban myth, I don't know. But it was certainly told to me by more than one uh, veteran. But I think it just shows you. That's right. The the um, w- when the the sergeant wants to shoot the mule and. The mule to get it says no 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 and um that that judge i think that was yeah quite illustrative of the of a of a connection there was between yeah. man and beast in that situation Good and when mules. and when they have that uh argument about eating the mule too yeah and, you know, and it's like you know and they've got the, the uh i think is it ty comes in and goes look you won't eat mule you're not gonna eat mule meat until i tell you and yeah. that's very telling to me. It's not, and also it really clutches on the heartstrings because I, I hadn't seen this movie in absolutely years. So when he re- when he readied that Thompson at the mule, I was like, no, you can't, do that. <laughs> not the mule. <laughs> so please <laughs> think rationally here. You know, <laughs> it's not. And I like afterwards he's wearing the the mule's little uh, wicker yeah, hat. Yeah. That's really cute. Yeah. I, it's it's a nice little touch. Fuller knew how to you know, make us care. <laughs> That's one of the great things about this film at times. It, it does do a good job of that. Matt, favourite scene? I'm not sure I have one uh, specifically. Not that mm. there aren't great scenes throughout the film. Um, I really do like the choreography of that second battle sequence, though, um, where they're, they're moving through um, Walla Boom and they're, they're, they're fighting their way through. It's a really interesting thing to depict a you know a firefight in it's the, like the foundations of a fuel um silo and the 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 japanese are running around inside and they're trying to fight their way through um there's lots of great camera work where it's tracking shots of the japanese and then at the end of that there's a really nice uh little sequence where ty hardin's character stock is surveying the battlefield and it goes into this nice um, overhead shot of him of looking down on him as he's walking above the battlefield on top of the foundations, and he's stepping from foundation to foundation, looking down at the, you know, the, the devastation below. The Japanese have been routed, and he's lost a lot of men. Mm. And it's just a really nice shot. It's illustrative. You know, it shows the um, the toll of the battle. It's very Sam Fuller does Gone with the Wind there. With all the men on the floor, did you mm. notice that? It, yeah. does, it almost strikes me as the exact same. Not shot. quite. Not not quite the it's same. High. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not quite the same height as Gone with the Wind, but yeah, I know what you mean. It's echoing. Uh, I I like that, and I I like a lot of the sequences where uh, the weight of command is shown. So you don't you get you get that not only with with Stock's character and and not only with Merrill's character, but with Stock's character, he's he's a new platoon officer and he's struggling with writing letters home. And there's a there's a scene where he talks. It's definitely not a favorite scene, but it, he he talks about um, his relationship with Merrill, and he wrote Merrill wrote a home, a letter home to 
to uh, his wife because Stock didn't have anyone, you know, for mm. him to write home to him about. And, and those little bits that are filtered in throughout the film are really interesting because they have an interesting relationship, as inaccurate as it may be, and you know, it's not based in anything in particular. I don't believe. I didn't. I didn't see that anyway. But um, yeah, I really like that sequence in uh, Walla Boom where they fight their way through that fuel yard um, through the railhead mm. and um, and the, the contemplative uh, little sequence after it. I thought that was quite well done. That is powerful. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have a favourite scene either. Um, not because I don't think the movie is strong enough to have one. Uh, I just couldn't pick one personally. But I do. One thing I will talk about is I really like Fuller's sense of scale because he's got a lot of men on screen at any one given mm. time and they're all in kit they all have weapons um and it, it really adds something to the movie um whether it is accurate or not is another matter um with the types of battles that they fought but it is it is very good scale it's something that i think fuller does well but i also really like the parts where the, it seems that some sequences could almost be ripped out of stock footage i really like the the start of the movie that uses that little uh, sort of cut up section. It's like a square within the, the scene. It's not full blown. It's like a little square yeah. in the middle of the scene at the start. And the guys, it talks about the marauders and they, it's black and white and it comes into color and it's, and you think, Oh, it's, a, Oh, it's our movie now. Yeah. And it's Chandler's really, walking ahead of the of yeah. a, of a column, isn't he? And, it's and then really it strong... just fades into color and, and, the ratio expands and that's how it yeah. begins. It's a really strong like transition. And I like, I like when movies do that with stock footage, using it in a, in a clever way rather than just cutting yeah. it in to save money. Cause you can't afford battleships or something. It, um, it's a classic contextual introduction yeah, to the film. It's, it's really but good. Done in a, in a, you know, quite a competent mm. way. And I like the parts where the start, cause one thing this movie does as well, I know it only sometimes concentrates on the platoon of maybe th three or four chaps, but it, it does show you the three of a lot of men on, on a track. It does show you that. And at the start, when they're trying to get to cross the river and there's men with mules and there's men trying to like carry over like packs and things. That's really nice. Cause I've seen, I did a video on my channel about uh, the mechanical mule uh, little truck thing they, they had after the war. Um, and there's footage in that documentary that I used of uh you know, I think it was the Marauders guys with mules going through, and it, it could be shot. It could be just that colorized. Um, it, it is really nice to see it. So, uh, I think probably it's it's that level of sort of detail as well. Um, but there's one little section I will mention as well uh, before we go on to the Patreon questions. Um, I, I like the part where it's wrong to say like because it's not the right emotion. <laughs> um, but they're going up the ridge there. And a chap loses his footing and falls and you hear a scream and it, you don't hear anything else. And there's no thud or anything like that. Um, so it's not played. It's not, it, I thought it was going to be played. They didn't like, throw a Wilhelm scream on it. No, exactly. God. Yeah. It's not yeah. played like that. And the, the chaps look over and they keep going. And it's really powerful. Like I think, okay, these lads have been through the mill now. That guy falling isn't the worst thing they've seen. It's, it really shows a little bit more of their psychological uh, barrier falling. I like that. It comes back to what Gavin was saying earlier. 
uh, it, it shows that dogged, you know, resilience Massive. of them pushing through really horrible circumstances in a really difficult environment. Hello, I'm Al Murray, and you're listening to Fighting on Film, the world's number one war film podcast. So I think that brings us on to our Patreon questions. So we've got two questions this week for Gavin, and they are a couple of crackers. So Tom McCall asks, what is the best veteran story or experience Gavin has had, whether it's being uh, told a hitherto unknown boy's own st- story or being shown some incredible wartime souvenir or medal collection? Who sent that question in, Tom? Tom McCall, yes. Yeah. Oh, great question, Tom. Uh, I'm assuming it's not just confined to the Marauders. Is that correct? It's just... Um, no, it, well, it, it was more of a general be, one, no. I think. Yeah. Uh, well... Tom, I, it was a yeah, great question, and it, I spent about an hour this afternoon thinking about it uh, because I've had many. I've been privileged to have many uh, um, unforgettable encounters with veterans, be they uh, British, American, French, uh, Canadians. Um, but I think probably it's, um, uh, and I mentioned this actually in a tweet in a in a thread on um, Sunday because on Sunday. Uh, July the 24th, it was the, on July the 24th, 2005, Fraser McCluskey died, and he was a padre to one SAS in the war and spent three months behind the lines um, uh, in the Morvan uh, on, a, on an outstanding guerrilla campaign for which he was awarded an MC. And um, I, uh, in 2003, there's my ticket, I've kept it as it's such a special day. It was wow. a service of dedication for the role of honour of the SAS regiment, which is at St. Columbus Church in um, SW1 London. And um, it was the old and the bold. So there are, I don't know, 30 or 40 uh, wartime SAS veterans were there for this service of, um, of dedication. And Fraser McCluskey, who was then in his early 90s, wasn't well enough to come down. So they had a video link in the church and he spoke from his um, home in Edinburgh. And it was, I was there as a, as a plus one to a, a chap, Bob Lawson, who was in 1SS. So I was sat among the, uh, the wartime veterans. And as soon as Fraser McCluskey came on the screen, you could just feel the respect and the reverence that they felt for this man. And he, and he gave the address, and um, and then at, at the end of the service, they they sung "Lily Marlene," which was the um, regimental song of one SAS as well as the Africa Corps. And it was just you know the, the hairs on the back of your neck stood up, and it was just such a privilege to uh, to to be uh, just to feel this um, camaraderie that existed sixty years later. And then afterwards, we got in a couple of coaches to uh, there's a curry lunch that laid on for uh, everyone at the uh, Imperial College London. And that was just, again, in a different context. But they were yes. eating their curries, drinking their beers. The stories were being swapped. They were Mickey taking. And the sort of the years fell away from them. And they were back to being young men in the SAS in 1942, 43, etc., 44. And it was just to be to, to witness that was just yeah. something so special. And so that's that's probably for me the um something that I will I will treasure 
Uh, I'll certainly never forget it, and I and I treasure it. And when I think of it, it just uh, makes me um, so uh, gratified that I was able just to be part of that for a short time. That's incredible. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thanks for Tom for the questions. It was an absolute cool. Okay. Yeah, really good question. That was. And the second question today comes from Andrew CG. Uh, he asks, and this one's a bit more in depth, and it is a Marauders-related question. He asks, the role of the Chinese X-Force in supporting the attack on Mikita is overlooked in the film. What did the veterans have to say about their fighting capabilities and the support to the Marauders? And what did they think of Stillwell, a prickly and political general who demanded so much of them? Good question. Yeah, again, um, I know. was that Andrew? Andrew, yes. Yeah, Andrew, a really, really intelligent question there. Um, Firstly, they had um, uh, a respect for the Chinese. Uh, after Wallaboo, they, uh, they had a brief um, fraternization and um, obviously a bit hard with the language barrier. Um, but uh, the marauders I spoke to said, yeah, no, we, uh, we, we admired the, the Chinese. They were very good um, soldiers. One thing that one gripe, however, was that they didn't, they refused to eat the K-rations. They still will had flown in a lot of fresh food. So um, nice canned corned beef, onions, cucumbers, rice. <laughs> so the marauders weren't too happy about that. They were munching their K rations and these boys were, uh, were on there uh, having this, uh, uh, tucking into this lovely fresh food. But, um, but no, in, um, uh, in general, and of course the Japanese too, They uh, we mentioned Sam Wilson, I asked Sam Wilson about that and he said, well, I'd been told beforehand that they were a, uh, a very good fighting soldier and so it proved. Um, and it was Sam Wilson who also, I think, I'm going to quote from you, because it's very interesting about Stilwell. Um, uh, he was not liked at the end of a campaign, he was hated. Um, uh, in fact, there's a quote somewhere I saw, which wasn't... Uh, told me but it's it's in the literature of one marauder saying if i could get that son of a bitch in my sights i'll shoot him um that's how i hate him because they just thought and they were right really that he lied to them that uh he he'd broken more than one promise but i asked i asked um sam wilson um what was your opinion of general stillwell and he said, and I quote, Stilwell was one of the greatest corps commanders in World War II with enormous tactical skills, but he had an impossible job because aside from being in charge of the CBI, the Chinese, China, Burma, India, he was deputy commander of Southeast Asia Command and chief of staff to nationalist Chinese leader Chiang Kai-shek. He was so stretched, he was stretched so thin he could not give adequate attention to any one of these jobs. Ultimate in diplomacy would have been required for a man holding these various jobs at the same time. And he was not a diplomat. So as far as I'm concerned, he failed. Mm. Interesting. Very. Yeah. I think the film's depiction of him is very simplified. Very. Because, you know, he comes into that hut with Merrill and he makes the big ask and Merrill's reluctant and... You know, he turns to me and says, well, Frank, my big worry is one million Japanese hooking up with the Germans. And I don't know. I think that's that simplifies the situation in China, yeah. Alabama, India massively, yeah. doesn't it, really? 
I mean, the, the, there was. I don't think the Japanese ever intended to physically hook up with the Germans. No. I think. I don't think the Germans ever did but, either. It was no. you know, a, yeah. I just just another thing about um, uh, Steel World is that very much he wanted to seize Michnar. This is what really uh, the the Marauders realised um, after they seized Michnar that it was about the glory for Steel World. And right. it was about, and it was a quote from him: "This will burn the limeys up." He did, he was an anglophone. He didn't mm-hmm. like the, the limeys. Yeah. The British. Got um, that from War of Empires. <laughs> Read yeah. that. You're like, oh, still doesn't like us very much, does he? And um, <laughs> he, um, so when when they seized the airstrip at Michnar on May the seventeenth, they received an order of the day from uh, Mount Batten, in which he really praised their feet and said it was a a wonderful achievement, but they received nothing from Stilwell. And um, Shocking, Hunter, it? actually, a week later, when Stilwell returned to the airstrip, and I think it was May the 25th, and, and Hunter, very courageously, personally handed him a letter in which he lambasted his leadership and his neglect of the marauders and the broken promises. Mm. And um, um, Stilwell read it, in silence and then looked up at Hunt and said, this is a strong letter. And Hunt said, I feel strongly. Very courageous. He was a very man, a man of high principle, uh, Charles Hunter. And ultimately it cost him his, his job. Uh, uh, yeah, his job. And, his, and to an extent, his reputation. And he was really airbrushed out of the scene. But again, Sam Wilson. Literally in the film. Well, yeah. So Sam Wilson said, Merrill was a brilliant staff officer with creative ideas. Hunter was the executive executor of ideas, the man of action. And so he, this Merrill's marauders, great bit of alliteration. Yeah. But it was really, uh, mm. should have been Hunter's marauders. Right. It still sounds good doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. So I think, I mean, they're fabulous questions. Um, uh, thanks to yeah, our patrons for those. Yeah, yeah. yeah very, very Actually, good. Actually, I think it's quite interesting that, um, that there's zero mention of the Chinese in the film. Mm, yes. Yeah, for, obvi- for obvious reasons. I uh, Ch- mean, it's China. Probably and, at the time, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. But there's zero mention of that and they're, they're just as important within that theatre as anyone else. I mean, it's, uh, it seems only now that they're getting a bit of more record you know uh recognition there's a couple of books that have come out lately mm. about their war big documentary series a few yeah, years ago i remember massive that misunderstanding of you know yeah of course in well, the West interesting of, boys because when, when we when we chatted a couple of months ago about the attack what was it attack, attack force, force z yeah that's mm. an outstanding film i've already yeah. got it um <laughs> but, uh, that was in the early 70s wasn't it with, Mel, yes. with a young mel gibson 1980 i think talked. yeah hey, that's right so late 70s so so nearly 20 years later, and of course, Mao was dead, and chi- Chinese, because we were talking about this, because the Chinese are portrayed... Chinese relations are thought. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, of course, in the early 60s, they were real... I mean, even even Russia, you know, uh, Khrushchev found uh, found uh, Mao um, a bit hardcore in the early well, 60s. So it's, yeah, wasn't it in 62 that they actually invaded India? The, the Sino-India War was in '62, so that's oh, yeah. that's that's um, that's not going to help. Backdrop <laughs> for it, isn't it? Really? No, yeah. That brings us on to final thoughts this week.
Gavin, your final thoughts on Merrill's Marauders? I think for, for its time, it's it's uh, a decent film. I think it's... Um, uh, I can understand why the veterans would be a little bit upset because there's only three real characters and two of them weren't, weren't really liked by the Marauders mm. and Stillwell. But I think, actually, as we've said, from a... It's quite authentic in terms of of kit, of weapons, etc., of uniforms, and they've done a, a reasonable. They stuck quite closely to the to the chronologically um, the, the the terrain, as we said, is very accurate. But no, I think I'd sort of probably give it about a six and a half out of ten. Yeah, okay. I th- I kind of agree there. I, I've got in my notes that. A good, but not a great film. So I think what it is, because Fuller is so sort of held up within the the industry itself, you've got people like Tarantino and Scorsese, they hold him up as influences for their work. I always expect a lot more than I get out of Fuller movies, I think. Although it's good and it's got great set pieces, and it? I think it, sh- I think it shoots its shot too early with the set pieces. I wish it had shown the men at least going in to Mickinar. And then fading out, that might have been nice because um, it's the it's the whole point that they're out there, surely. But I feel like it, it it can't make its mind up at its core whether it's about Merrill and his uh, his inner thought, his inner battle with whether he's going to make it with his health and yeah, if he's going to yeah. get these men there. You get that from it, but then it, I almost feel like it's at its strongest when you're showing the strain on the on the troops. So somewhere I just feel a bit more attention should have been paid to one or the other and you can't do both justice and it tries to and I just don't think it you know because at the end when 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 Merrill has his heart attack it's quite one and done he holds his holds his chest and he goes down I'm thinking well I would have cared a lot more if you'd have shown me a lot more what Merrill was going under because sometimes it's a little bit underplayed and maybe he was understated as a person and that was how he's portrayed in the movie I don't know but yeah I just wanted a little bit more I think that's my one through line. And I think the six out of 6.5 out of 10, we don't rate them, but I think that is fair. It's it just, it Fuller, Fuller's a good director, don't get me wrong. I think he just gets it over the line, but it, it's, you know, it's not gonna, it's not, it's just, just wanted more. What about you, Matt? Uh, I, I'm coming off what you said there, Rob. I think I agree. I, when you think about it, there's not many films that try and combine a, classic squad level war movie with command decisions in an organic way Mm, yes and the film really does try and do that and there's a number of scenes where it's pure exposition and it's often with the doctor and and someone asks him or and there's a discussion and he says well the stock used to be his sergeant when he was a major and that's how they're linked and they care about one another and then there's little exposition scenes that talk about stock was wounded and he writes home to his wife uh meryl's wife uh, and, and that kind of stuff. And they try and meld this relationship and then they show the breakdown of that. And I like the aspect where it breaks down and he finally, Stock finally says, you don't care about these men, do you? And and Meryl's response is, you have to hurt men. When you're in command, sometimes you have to hurt men and sometimes they're your own men. That that's an, It's an interesting dynamic and I, I like that they've attempted to do it. And as you say, it doesn't always work. No, That's that sounds sure. more like dialogue out of twelve o'clock high. You know, <laughs> it really does. Yeah, there's there's a there's a weightiness to some of these scenes. Yeah. And then 
And it's a it's shame because it, it is, yeah, you're just about to say that, yeah. It's lost elsewhere. And the scale is good. The scale's really good. I, I've seen this film dozens of times. I've watched it since I was a kid and I like it. I, I When I came to rewatch it for this show, though, when I was a little bit more critical, it wasn't as good as I, you know, I remembered. It's been perhaps a year or so, two years since I've seen it. And I've probably just caught the back half of it on, on, on TV at some point, but sat down, watched it again and it's good. But I was like, well, there's no representation of Chinese forces. There's no representation of Japanese Americans, as we've mentioned. And then the, some of the exposition feels clunky. And then the, the bit where stock helps the, the young um, lady that's got a, a, a shrapnel wound in her leg. I, unnecessary. Didn't, yeah feel that was really necessary i think they just got that in because she was another fairly well-known filipino actor and i think the that she was in there because they were filming locally um maybe it was i don't know something the studio had agreed on to film that um it just felt unnecessary Mm. well i think Um, fighting on film successfully killed another childhood classic of yours matt hasn't it yeah god damn it (laughs) why did i start this podcast just one after another. No, I enjoy the film. I do enjoy it. And I I think we, we talked about the kit and I like how the film shows that progression of exhaustedness. Mm, yeah. And Objective Burma actually does it as well. It, it does, shows yeah. the distressing of yeah. the uniforms. The men grow facial hair. They're tired. They're exhausted. They break down psychologically. And I, I like that they portray that because as Gavin's you know, eloquently explained, the hardships they faced were huge. Yeah. Um, some of the worst of the war. And the film tries to get that across, but I, I obviously geographical constraints, they can't show the, the elephant grass that Gavin mentioned, sure. and the, the thick bamboo forests, the freezing mountains. But it still does a fairly good job. Mm. But I think it, it ticks the box in the end of, oh, I really want to find out more about this unit, Merrill's Marauders, that campaign. And I, I think I encourage everyone book. now to. I was <laughs> going to say, Gavin, Gavin, do you mind? Book. I was about to plug for you. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just um, say something, boys? I've, I've forgotten. Um, I've got um, after about a five-year campaign on May the twenty-fifth this year. The um, I was I was honoured to be part of it. It was the um, it was a virtual congressional gold medal ceremony. The, the Marauders got their Congressional Gold Medal after a lengthy campaign. Wow. Wow. I always felt that there was this sort of slow-burning resentment that they hadn't been, because of a nasty way things had ended, they hadn't been properly recognised. So they got this campaign. Uh, Nancy Palesso, um, uh was the uh, Master of Ceremonies. Um, and a couple of Marauders now... Was um, actually um, were, were, were present online and and um, participated. There's two marauders left, so three thousand originally volunteered uh, in August September '43, and there's two left: Gabriel Kinney, who's 101, and Russ Hamler, who's uh, who's 98. So there we go. So that's going to be quite a, a poignant moment when uh, mm-hmm. when the last survivor uh, passes into history and and and. Uh, we sort of lose that living link with yeah. uh, with the Marauders because they were an, an exceptional bunch. And I think just a, my final word on this, and, and you've touched on this, both of you, is that they, they again another um, facet that they, I think they do convey is the sort of the rather 
unorthodox nature of the unit. So the the, the characters, uh, ethnicity-wise, it was a real hodgepodge of um, of uh, a very good Native American um, sniper. Uh, quite a few of, uh, of, of Mexican origin, etc. German, English, Irish, all sorts, um, and also with the clones, and they sort of, you know, that sort of rather maverick feel, which which was true, and and they were an exceptional uh, unit, and uh, it's been really enjoyable uh, to, to talk about them and just hopefully shed a bit more light on them. Yeah, fantastic, and of course, if you want to learn more pick up gavin's book wherever you can um as i was trying to say yes no definitely do um i'm so glad you could join us for this gavin because as i said earlier as soon as we knew we were going to be covering it i i said to rob we need to get gavin on for it because yeah. we he can do you know the justice that we want to do it um and and, and the actual campaign itself and give us all that context that yeah it really brings and it's always it fascinating to, to me like whenever we find like what the veterans felt after yeah. the fact. And it's always these, you know, you don't get it as much now. Maybe you get it, maybe we'll get it with, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan movies going forward. But um, it, it's that, it's only like, what, 10, 15 years after? And, and that, like, it's like a blink of time, isn't it? And I always, it, it's like when we did Objective Burma, I, I loved reading how guys felt so aggrieved um, at how they were, tr- how they were portrayed. Um and then obviously you get it with the Merrill's guys. I'm just really pleased you've been able to come on and share that with us. Um, well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. No, no, it's it's, um, it's always our pleasure. And yeah, of course, you know, uh, we, if you haven't said it already, please do search out all of Gavin's books. They're all fantastic. His, his recent Attack Force C one was very good. I had to leaf through it before I had to send it away to the, the lucky winner last time. But as always, thanks for listening to Fighting on Film. Uh, you can find us on all the socials these days. I think we're on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, you can find all of our back catalogue at fightingonfilm.com. Who knows, you'll have a foth binge. Maybe find some of your favourites there and see what we think of them. Gavin, yet again, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks, boys. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.